Last week we began a series on the names of God. As I mentioned, it was a series I've been been keen to do for a while. And the plan is to look at some of the names that God uses of himself in Scripture and see what those names tell us about himself. Uh, and last week we began uh, by way of introduction uh, by saying that unlike everyone else and unlike the animals, no one named God. We don't give names to God, rather he reveals his names to us. And that speaks of his authority. Naming someone or something else is an act of authority as we see for example with Adam naming the animals. As we saw last week we have various examples in scripture of God changing people's names to describe the new role that he has given them and wonderfully God's name is put on us in baptism. As Jesus told us to, to baptize all nations into the name uh, singular uh, of Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Last week we looked at the most basic name for God in the Bible, uh, which is the name God or Elohim in Hebrew. As we saw, it's a word that can be used to speak either of God uh, with a capital G or or the gods with a small g. Uh, And we saw an example of that in Jonah chapter 1 there. Uh, It's used in both senses. And so in one sense, uh, the word we looked at last week, God, Elohim, it it could be used to describe a whole category of beings. But the Bible is also clear there actually only is one God. Uh, Psalm 86.10, you alone are God. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 8 about many called gods in heaven and on earth. So the word translated as God can be used, as we saw, as a description of angels, demons, even human rulers, judges. But there's only one of whom we can say in the words of Psalm 90, that from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. These other gods were created and one day they will perish. Jeremiah tells us that the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens, but our God remains forever. And so having looked last week at the most basic name for God, we're coming tonight to the most frequently used name for God. And that is the name that's in our Bibles as Lord, L-O-R-D in capital letters. It's used almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament, compared to about 2,500 uses of Elohim, And this is what we could call God's personal name. Indeed, it has been said that Yahweh, or or the Lord, is the only truly personal name of God in Israel's faith. Uh, The others are titles or descriptive expressions. Uh, The place we see the meaning of this name particularly spelled out is in the book of Exodus. God speaks to Moses in Exodus 6 verse 3, a few chapters after we read earlier, and tells Moses, I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name the Lord I did not make myself known to them. Now that can't mean that Abraham, Isaac and Jacob didn't know the the name the Lord, because it's clear from the book of Genesis that they did, they knew it, they, they used it. 
But something different is happening in Moses' day. The Lord is revealing more about what his name means. And he's doing that not simply as he speaks to Moses here, but also through the Exodus itself. This ties in with our introduction last week when we saw that God's name isn't simply a label, but a revelation of his character. And so when the Apostle Paul is commissioned by the Lord Jesus to carry his, that's Jesus' name, before the Gentiles, it meant far more than just add a new word to the vocabulary of the Gentiles. It meant to tell them what Jesus was like. Another passage we could go to is John 17, where Jesus says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. In other words, Jesus came to reveal God or make him known, as John 1 puts it. In fact, Jesus can say in in John 17, I have made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known. So Jesus is clearly not talking about making known a new name, but about revealing more about what God is like. And I think we have to understand what God says in Exodus 6.3 in a similar way. Someone has summed it up through the events of the Exodus. The Lord will be known in a deeper and a fuller way. Or as someone else has put it, what was new was not the revelation of the name itself, but a new experience of its meaning, bound up with God's faithfulness to his covenant promises and redemptive acts on behalf of his people. And that all brings us back to the passage we read earlier in the service. In Exodus 3.13, Moses asks God, If I tell the people of Israel that the God of their fathers has sent me to them, and they ask, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God replies, I am who I am. Now perhaps that might sound to us like like a non-answer, like an avoidance of answering the question. But God is speaking there of his self-existence and self-sufficiency. Just as God is the only being in the universe who is not named by anyone else, so he is the only being who doesn't depend on anyone else for his existence. Every other being that exists is dependent on God, but God is not. Every other being had a beginning, but God did not. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and is to come, the Almighty. In the book of Hebrews, uh, the priest Melchizedek is used as a picture of the Lord Jesus having neither beginning of days nor end of life. We're told of the Lord Jesus in Colossians uh, that he is before all things and in him all things hold together. So for God to say, I am who I am, speaks of his self-existence and self-sufficiency. And this I am language is frequently taken up in the book of Isaiah. For example, Isaiah 41.4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and the last. I am he. 
Or Isaiah 43.10, You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servants whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. And the message that Moses is to bring to the people is that this awesome, self-existent God is going to be with them. What an amazing thing that is. This God is going to be with them. And even more amazingly, one day Jesus Christ would come and would very deliberately apply this name to himself when he said, before Abraham was, I am. The Jews were in no doubt as to who Jesus was claiming to be. And so, he, so, so they picked up stones to stone him, which was the punishment for blasphemy. Now, maybe you're wondering when we'll come to, to, to the name the Lord in verse 15. Uh, but actually, uh, verses 14 and 15 are closely connected. Uh, the statement, I am who I am, and the name the Lord uh, are, are bound up together. In verse 14, God uh, tells Moses, speaking of the name the Lord, This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So verse 14, what is your name? I am who I am. Verse 15, the Lord, this is my name. And this is even clearer in the Hebrew because the name translated as the Lord and the phrase I am are very similar. And this name, the Lord, is also known as the covenant name of God. We began our reading earlier at the end of Exodus 2 which tells us that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And here in chapter 3, God tells Moses to tell the people, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And so the name God, Elohim, which we looked at last week, speaks more of God's power, Whereas the name Lord speaks of God's covenant relationship with his people. We see this highlighted for us in the book of Psalms. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed, but Psalms 14 and 53 are almost identical. Uh, they both begin, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. And, and they go on from there. But there's one difference, well, well a couple of, couple of differences, but one main difference between the two Psalms. And that is that Psalm 14, as it goes on, almost always uses the word Lord for God, whereas Psalm 53 uses the word God. So, for example, Psalm 14 says of fools, they do not call upon the Lord, whereas Psalm 53 says they do not call upon God. So what's the difference too? Uh, basically identical Psalms, but one of them calls God God, and the other one calls him the Lord. What, why the difference? Well, Psalm 53 is part of a group of psalms which are aiming to communicate with non-Israelite peoples to address the world's atheists head-on, as someone has put it. And in that psalm, it makes sense to use the more general name for God. Whereas in Psalm 14, which is specifically speaking to God's covenant people, the name the Lord is used. As we saw last week, that verse in Jeremiah, which says that the gods who didn't make the heavens and the earth will perish from the heavens and the earth. That's written in Aramaic. It's written in the, the universal language. 
because it's addressing the nations. And here, uh, when it comes to a psalm that's addressing the nations, it uses the word God, it uses the word Elohim, the word that they'll understand. So the name God, that, that basic name for God, it tells us that God is majestic, that he is eternal, that he is powerful. And the name Lord includes all those things and more. But there's this special emphasis that he is the God who makes and keeps covenant. That he is the God who is for his people. That he is the God who remembers his people. That he is for us, not against us. And this is the God we come to worship this evening. This is the God that you have in the week ahead, brother and sister. So that's all in terms of the meaning of the name. But one issue we can't skirt over is that what we actually have translated in our Bibles as the Lord isn't actually what God calls himself to Moses in the original language. In the original Hebrew, it's just four consonants, Y-H-W-H. This is translated in some older Bible versions as Jehovah and some more recent Bible versions as Yahweh. In some of our our Psalm versions, we have the word Jehovah. But in all the most used Bible versions, such as the King James or the ESV, the name is either mostly or, or always translated as the Lord in capital letters. And the reason for that started thousands of years ago out of a desire among the Jews not to take God's name in vain and so they stopped saying it uh, stopped even writing it at times in case it was written on a contract and the contract got burned or something like that Uh, but they they would write it in in the Bibles but they wouldn't pronounce it Uh, they would say the word Lord instead which in Hebrew is Adonai The word Adonai is itself used for God in the Bible. Uh, For example, Psalm 114 verse 7, you'll see the word Lord, but it's not in capitals. And that's your clue that it's a different name from from the name that God revealed to Moses. So Lord in capital letters is Jehovah or Yahweh. Lord in small letters is Adonai. The the group before me at Theological College... uh, or maybe the group before that, uh, they, they went on a field trip. We didn't get to go on any field trips, but they went on a field trip to a synagogue in, in Belfast. And, and if you were to go to a synagogue, uh, whenever uh, they would be reading from the scriptures, when they get to this name, Yahweh, Jehovah, they, they won't read it out, but instead they'll say Adonai instead. The only exceptions are when they come across Adonai and Yahweh used beside each other as one name. So for example, Jeremiah 32, 17, Jeremiah says, Ah, Adonai, Yahweh. Uh, But rather than say Adonai twice, the Jews say Adonai Elohim, that is Lord God. Ah, Lord God. And most English translations do the same. Uh, And that's uh, significant uh, because uh, there are those who would say that Elohim and Yahweh are different gods, uh, that Elohim is God the Father and Jehovah is Jesus. So how would we answer that? Uh, Well, well, one, one way to respond to that is that 749 times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as the Lord God. 
in Hebrew. In other words, Yahweh Elohim. Uh, That's what's used in the original language, Lord God. In Genesis chapter 2, which we read this morning, it's used 11 times in that one chapter alone. So, example, Genesis 2.4 talks about the day Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, made the earth and the heavens. Uh, so, by, by combining the names, the Bible makes clear that Yahweh and Elohim are the one God. The passage in front of us this evening is another example, Exodus 3.15 Say to this people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Israel, has sent me to you. Who is this God? He is Yahweh, the Elohim of your fathers. He is Yahweh Elohim, the creator of all things. So the name that God revealed to Moses is the name Yahweh, which the Jews began to replace with the name Lord. And that tradition stuck. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Jesus and the apostles used, did the same thing. And over time, people forgot how to pronounce the name that God gave to Moses. The Jews, they weren't trying to pronounce it, but everyone else forgot how to pronounce it. Maybe ask, well, how can you forget how to pronounce a word? The Hebrew language was originally written all in, in consonants. And so one generation had to learn from the previous generation how to pronounce words. There, there were no vowels. Uh, try, try taking the, the vowels out of the next thing that you're reading and it, it becomes a lot harder to pronounce. Eventually the vowels were added in uh, underneath the consonants. But when it came to this name, Yahweh, Jehovah... The Jews put in the vowels of either Adonai or Elohim because that was what, that was what they were meant to read uh, to remind people what to say instead, uh, whether to say Adonai or, or Elohim. They, they put in the vowels of those words underneath the, the name Yahweh. Uh, and as time, this is, this is pre, pre-Christian, uh, but, but as time went by, Christians came along. Or, or well, well, the vowels were, were, were added after the Christians came along. But, but the Christians came along and Christians in the early church and the Middle Ages had very little knowledge of Hebrew. Even a great church father like St. Augustine didn't know Hebrew and thought the church should just use the Greek translation of the Old Testament instead. Uh, so that there would all be one Bible. And when Christians did look at the Hebrew Bible they began to try and pronounce the consonants of one word using the vowels that were meant for another word. And that is where the name Jehovah comes from. Uh, one, one Bible translator today describes it as a mistake waiting to happen. Uh, and so uh, most people today prefer the name Yahweh uh, as closer uh, to how the name would originally have been pronounced. And this is, uh, can be a fairly hot topic today. Some people will argue very strongly that Bible translations should include the name that God actually revealed to Moses. Uh, a couple of years ago, John MacArthur and some scholars associated with him brought out a Bible translation which uses Yahweh instead of Lord. 
And the argument is that God revealed to us a personal name, not a title, and so we should use that personal name. Personally, I have a lot of sympathy with that position, though there are also strong counter-arguments, as we'll see in a minute. There have been some significant figures in Reformed Church history who've argued strongly for using Jehovah or Yahweh instead of the Lord. So John Calvin, uh, he used Jehovah when he translated the Psalms into French. And he said it was foul superstition of the Jews not to use the name. There's a man, Thomas Gallagher, at the Westminster Assembly, uh, and he, he argued uh, elsewhere uh, for a name, Yahweh, uh, as a correct pronunciation. But, but his main point uh, was that anything is better than substituting in a different word. And B.B. Warfield, one of the great theologians of America, uh, at the turn of the beginning of the 20th century, end of the 19th century, said that while nobody supposes Jehovah is a true pronunciation, it was what people were familiar with, uh, and so it should be used, and it was far better than substituting in a different word. So, so strong arguments on the one side. But the counter-argument, on the other hand, is that Jesus and the apostles continued the tradition of using the word Lord when they quoted from the Greek Old Testament. They could have changed it if they wanted, but they didn't. Uh, And under the Spirit's guidance and inspiration, they kept on using the the substituted word Lord, uh, uh, which over time became uh, effectively more a name than a title. And certainly in God's providence, it all provides powerful evidence for the fact that the New Testament authors believed Jesus to be God and to be the same God uh, that the Old Testament spoke about. Because the New Testament authors used uh, the same word that their Old Testaments used as God's personal name and applied it to Jesus. What do I mean by that? I mean that every time the apostles read God's personal name in their Greek Old Testament, it was the word kurios, Lord. Uh, So rather than saying Yahweh, Jehovah, uh, they would have seen the name kurios. That was the name that God revealed to Moses as they're reading it in, in their Greek Old Testament. And what did they call Jesus? They called him Lord. They called him kurios. And so to take Romans 10, for example, Paul says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, kurios, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then three verses later, he quotes from the book of Joel, which in the Hebrew Old Testament reads, Everyone who calls in the name of Yahweh will be saved. But Paul quotes it from the Greek Old Testament. Everyone who calls in the name of the kurios, will be saved. In other words, he's quoting an Old Testament passage about Yahweh and applying it to Jesus. And because the word Lord was already in his Greek Old Testament, he can apply it to Jesus without even changing the word. And so this tradition that that we have, and we have it in our Bibles, we have it in our psalm books, it may have its roots in superstition, But it meant that there was a seamless way for the New Testament authors to connect Jesus to Yahweh and to make clear that Jesus is the God of Israel. At the Reformation, Martin Luther wrote in his introduction to the German Bible, 
that the reason he decided to stick with the tradition was so that readers could thereby draw the strong conclusion that Christ is true God. Christ is not less than God, uh, nor is he a different God. And the New Testament authors help us see that by keeping up what had begun as simply a Jewish tradition. Of, of course, the, the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses want to obscure that connection. They want to say Jehovah and Jesus, that they're not the same. They, they deny that Jesus is God. And so when they get to the likes of Romans 10, instead of translating it for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, which is what Paul actually wrote under the inspiration of the Spirit, they translate it as everyone who calls in the name of Jehovah will be saved. Now Paul could have written that, but he didn't. Under the Spirit's direction, he used the name Lord. Kurios, uh, the name for Yahweh in his Old Testament. So Paul does it, Peter does it. First uh, Peter 3.15 is particularly significant. In First Peter 3.15, Peter quotes from the Old Testament. He quotes from Isaiah 8 verse 12. Treat the Lord, the Kyrios, as holy. And Peter quotes it and says, Honour Christ the Lord as holy. Christ the Kyrios. Peter believed that the Jesus he knew, the Jesus that he had been on fishing boats with, the Jesus he denied, and the God of the Old Testament were one and the same. And so he quoted a verse speaking in Isaiah about Yahweh and applies it to Jesus. Now, none of this means that we should see the phrase the Lord in the Old Testament and think exclusively of God the Son. The name Jehovah or Yahweh applies to all three persons of the Trinity. Uh, the one God who has always existed in three persons. But is Jesus God? Is he of the same substance as the God of Israel? Uh, the very use of the same word for both is part of the evidence that he is. So where does this all leave us? Where does the rubber hit the road? I'd happily talk more about the history of the words Jehovah and Yahweh and the different options that Bible translations have gone for over, over the years. Uh, we see there even, even a bit of debate in the Reformed, tra Reformed tradition between Calvin and Luther in, in their translations. It's an important topic, but you don't have to be a Christian to debate it. Someone could do a, a PhD on the correct form of the divine name and still go to hell. Uh, and so let's finish with Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, says Paul, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be used to his own advantage, but taking the form of a servant was born in the likeness of men. So Jesus was in the form of God. So he didn't have a body, but he was born in the likeness of men. That tells us that before the incarnation, Jesus was not in the likeness of men, not in the physical sense. But as Hebrews 2 puts it, 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself partook of the same things. Why did he take on flesh and blood? Because we are flesh and blood. He became like us in order that he might save us. And so Jesus took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, as he had not been before. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. What is the name that is above every name for the Jew? It is the name Yahweh. It is the name that is above every name. It is, it is too holy, too pronounced, too holy even to write at times. But God has highly extolled on him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. And why has God so highly exalted the Lord Jesus not as a, as a pattern for us, not that we could one day become a God like him, but rather that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, curios to the glory of God the Father. Willingly or unwillingly, the day is coming when everyone will bow the knee to Jesus Christ, the Jesus Christ of this book. Once again, Paul is quoting from the Old Testament. This time it's Isaiah 45. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn. From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall bear, shall swear allegiance. Those last two lines are what Paul quotes in Philippians 2. The apostles identify the one true God of the Bible with Jesus Christ. No other God can save you. And so the only hope for any of us is not obedience to gospel law, but to bow the knee to Jesus Christ. The one who declares about himself, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Amen. Well, we close with Psalm 110, a psalm which the Lord Jesus brought up with the Jews of his day. The Lord has said unto my Lord, there we have Lord in capital letters and small letters. Yahweh has said to Adonai. And Jesus quizzes the people of his day and says, How, how can David call, call the Messiah Lord? If the Messiah is coming from David, how can David call him Lord? Jesus is saying, don't you see, this is speaking about me. Yahweh speaks to Adonai. Sit now at my right hand until I make your foes a stool on which your feet may stand. So Psalm 110, uh, the tune is Denfield, uh, which I, I think is 206, but we'll, we'll stand and sing praise. <laughs>